Uh, what I'm thinking about this morning, um, taken from the passage that we're going to read, in, is the, the themes of uh, compassion, uh, inclusion, exclusion. But first of all, thinking about compassion, it's a lovely word, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those words that everybody universally agrees. Oh, it's a wonderful, it's a lovely thing. Nobody would ever take offence at it. And I can remember an occasion when somebody showed compassion to me. Now, in hindsight, it's quite a funny story, but at the time, it wasn't very funny for me. What had happened was, I was in town, and this was before I, I learned to drive. And uh, I think it was Samuel, or Isaacs, it was one of their birthdays that day. And so I was rushing to get him uh, with the ingredients to make a cake. And so I was running up Union Terrace, because I could see the 37 bus just pulling up at the bus stop. But I tripped and took a massive flyer. And... Uh, <laughs> I, took a, I took a massive flyer, and I landed, bang, right on the, the really hard, knobbly concrete. You know, and uh, I have to say, I think I was concussed, all right? Because this is my excuse for what happened next. LAUGHTER because I managed to get up after a few seconds, dazed, and I was all bloodied and scraped and everything. My trousers were <laughs> torn at the knees. And I managed to sort of stumble my way towards these set of stairs near the bank. And uh, I sat down and I, and I passed out. But this is where the compassion comes in. There was a lady who was driving by. A Polish lady. And her name was Gosha. And I might call it chance. You might call it divine intervention. But we knew her. Because some time before she'd done some cleaning at her house during a busy period. I think it was a holiday club week. And she stopped her car in the middle of Union Terrace. And she got out and she was almost like uh, hysterical. Because she recognised me and she saw what had happened to me. And she was running up and down the street saying, Stop! Stop! To anybody that would listen. Saying, Somebody help this man! He's a good man! <laughs> she didn't know really well, did she? But anyway... She, she, she called Jude on the phone because she had Jude's number and she called an ambulance and I was, I was taken to hospital. I was alright in the end, but as I said, I was, I was badly concussed, of course. But compassion, I, I flattened it. Yeah, the tea cake I was going to use for Samuel's uh, cake was on me in the bag. So it was, was a shame. But, you know, that lady, she showed compassion and it, and it, well, it did something wonderful, certainly for me anyway. <laughs> So, but the other things I want to think about as well, and they're coming up in this passage that we're going to look about, is inclusion. You know, if you could almost, um, one of the, what I was saying, one of the, the most prominent themes in Jesus' three-year mission was the whole idea of inclusion, inviting people into the kingdom of God. That's that, basically. And it's the ongoing mission of the church today as well, inviting people into the kingdom of God. And you know the, the opposite inclusion is to be excluded. Now I'm sure many of us could probably recall a, an occasion when we felt excluded. Most often it, it happens in childhood. You know, you want to pick for the football team or something like that. And, and, and things we can look back on and say, oh yeah, and funny. But there's some maybe perhaps painful memories as well of an exclusion. Some of them ha- still happen as adults as well. And regardless of whatever age it comes, it hurts, doesn't it? And it hurts particularly when, as an adult, and you see it happening to your kids on occasion. It's horrible, isn't it? But it all changes, though, when an advocate 
You know, when a hero or a, a heroine appears in the scene and is your advocate and says, hey, wait a minute. No, you're in. Come on, you come with me. It's my party and you're invited. It changes everything, doesn't it? And in this passage that we're going to look at today, we see that themes coming across when Jesus stands as the, the hero, the advocate, who says, no, you come in as well. Okay, so we're going to look at uh, Mark. We're still in chapter 1, <laughs> but we're transitioning to chapter 2 as well. So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 1, reading verse uh, 40 through to chapter 2, verse 12. It will come up on the screen, but if you would like a Bible, Robert is our Bible monitor this morning. Uh, so just put your hand up and he will come and bring you one. So it's Mark chapter 1. Looking at verse 40 through to chapter 2, verse 12. Okay. Mark chapter 1, 40. And it reads this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out to the man and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone this, this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man uh, the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Amen. As we're thinking about that passage, that 
right at the beginning of that opening sentence where it says a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus. You know, that, that sentence in itself is extraordinary because of the very fact of what happened. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus. Here is Jesus, you know, his star is rising in a sense, his fame as a, as a rabbi, uh, a teacher of the law is, is rocketing. But yet a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Now for us today, that, well, yeah, well, what about it? But back then, that would almost be an anathema to a rabbi, to have a leper come before him. To be a rabbi is to be considered somebody of great renown, to be held in with the highest respect. I would assume that you'd be a careful observant of the, the law and the, the traditions of the elders. And when you think of that, and you have respect for that, and then your mind is brought to Leviticus chapter 13, it clearly says that anyone suffering from leprosy is unclean. And they should have nothing, they shouldn't even be approaching anybody, let alone a rabbi. Such was the, the, the associations uh, with leprosy. It was to be avoided at all costs. It was a sign of uh, defilement, of being cursed by God by an affliction of the body, of the skin. They are defined as being unclean. Their very presence brings contamination. Wherever they go, they, they infect their surroundings. And for the law-abiding Jew to be even in contact with a leper is unbelievable. It may be a bit like um, your pet dog coming into your nice clean kitchen. You know, it's just been rolling in a mess and it's been swimming in a local bog and it's just about to initiate that shaky its coat. You'd be like, get out! <laughs> be kicking it out the back door or you'd be going out the back door such was the fear of being in the contact in the presence of somebody suffering from leprosy but it wasn't so much the infection or the, the, the condition the person was suffering from it was the stigma and the belief that if you come into association with this person you would also come under the same judgment, the same defilement, you would be unclean, you would be defiled, you would be sullied, not in a, in a physical sense, but more on a, a spiritual, a, a moral sense. You see, the physical symptoms of leprosy were basically considered the label on the tin. What you see on the outside is really what the person is like on the inside. This person, this man that kneels before Jesus in popular belief, is under God's curse. So can you begin to imagine the, the misery of this person's predicament? Not only has he got this horrible condition, but he's also got the, the added uh, bonus, if you like, of being considered somebody a reprobate, you know, to be avoided. The term leprosy in Scripture is quite a broad term. It covered everything from eczema, psoriasis, to full-on Bacterium lapre, you know, the Hansen's disease that we know now today as modern day leprosy. 
It's a very, it's a one word, but it covers a multitude of sins, if you like. The word itself, lapre, comes from the Greek word, which means scaly skin. But that in itself is a very narrow definition of the, the bigger Hebrew word, sarat, which had the implications or the connotations of being cursed, a curse by God, being smitten. In the Old Testament, there's plenty of examples of when that happened. Naaman, Miriam, Moses' sister, even Moses himself, King Uzziah, they all experienced the shame and the horror of the scaly skin, and it was a sign of God's rebuke. For some of them, it was just for a brief period, but for some, it was for the remainder of their lives. And so the consequences of living under that label, that condition, that stigma, really meant the end of your life, in a sense. Well, certainly for as long as you carried the condition. You were exiled to the local dump. (laughs) You know, unclean people had to live in unclean places. And probably after spending a week in a community of other exiles and leprosy sufferers, you might have gone there with eczema. You might have come back with a Hansen's disease. (laughs) It's difficult to consider a modern equivalent to the condition and the stigma associated with it. But perhaps the closest we can get, certainly here in the West, would probably be the AIDS virus, the AIDS epidemic of the early 90s. You know, if somebody had contracted that, it was, there was a whole lot of baggage that came with it, wasn't there? It was assumed that you lived a promiscuous lifestyle. It was assumed that you uh, had a certain orientation, or sexual orientation rather. And that led to some people coming to the conclusion that actually, yeah, this was God's uh, divine judgment on a certain way of life. It didn't say much for the haemophiliacs and the, the, the medical staff inadvertently infected by it as well, though, did it? You see, it's very easy to exclude, isn't it? We find it very easy to exclude people. To assume that the misfortune that has come upon somebody is the result of some misdemeanor, some sin. It's the punishment, if you like. Don't get me wrong, there are, seems to be, suggestions in Scripture where God does just do He does do that. He does discipline. He does punish. But it's always with the intention of drawing them back in. And as you discipline a child, it's to correct them. It's not like they're, they're excluded forever. It's to teach them a lesson. But it's not always the case. And these two incidents that we've just read in Mark's Gospel, they make allowances for both. This man that came before Jesus... If it had been any other rabbi, he might have had stones thrown at him, or rocks. Or the rabbi himself might have turned tail and ran away. But there seems to be, there seems to be something about Jesus. That this man feels that he can, he can come out of his hiding, so to speak. He can come out of his exclusion and approach Jesus in the open, open air. There's something about Jesus. That he thinks that he might get a fair hearing but it might not have gotten one from anybody else. It's certainly courageous of him. I wonder 
we don't know exactly where this happened, but there certainly doesn't seem to be anyone else around. Would it be that they all recoiled in horror when they saw this man coming? Or was it more possible that Jesus actually went out to the lonely and they excluded places? We know he has done it in the past when he met the Samaritan woman at the well. He went at an unusual time of the day. Maybe he made a point of going out and looking for these people. But it's because it's unlikely that they were going to come to him. This is looking at a fundamental aspect of Jesus' whole character and its compassion. Jesus responded, he acted, the things he did was always in a steady stream of compassion. Sometimes it states it literally in scripture. But often or not, the reason why he does it is because of a comp- compassion. And compassion itself cannot remain inactive. That's one of the first things I want, I want to stress to you this morning. You know, compassion cannot remain inactive. It calls for a response. It initiates a response. And I want to ask you this morning, how is your compassion tank, if you like? Is it filled? Is it filled up? Is it it ready to go? When was the last time you, you did something out of a response to compassion? The reason I'm asking, because it is a fundamental characteristic, not just of Jesus, but it's also then of the Christian community. Everything that we do should be out of an act of compassion, whether it be to one another or whether it be people out with. Compassion is to be fundamental to who we are and how we operate in life. You know, I remember, you know, I'm sure you will remember as well, 1996, the, the day of the, the Dunblane shooting. I remember at the time because I was working um, for the Daily Record and the Sunday Mail newspaper group, so the news came in uh, quite quickly. And it was just that sense of unbelief and, and horror at what had happened in Dunblane at the shooting. And it was, a, yeah, it was a national response. But I remember that same day that the, the guys in the, the wreck initiated uh, an appeal uh, a campaign, I think they called it the Snowdrop Campaign, to change the gun laws uh, in Scotland. And they'd, put a, they'd prepared like a, a, what do you call it, a, a signatory thing in the paper, trying to get people signing up to this so they can forward it to the government and then get them to change it. And I remember that following Sunday, that Wednesday, taking that paper to the, to the church because I, I needed to do something. I, 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 I Nobody ever wanted this to happen again. And it might have been a small gesture on my part, but compassion demanded that I had to take, make some kind of response. And for my part, let's sign this up and let's get these things changed because nobody ever wants this to happen again. Compassion is fundamental to the Christian character. It was intrinsic to Jesus. It's intrinsic to the nature of God himself. You have to, well, he sent his son, didn't he? He sent Jesus to save a wayward world. And Jesus then has high expectations of us. That we go beyond the social norms and the etiquettes that we move and live in. 
today. He expects us to be moved by compassion. Regarding this first man who came, there's no mention of any moral failing on his part. He came to Jesus with a plea to be healed. Just sometimes, often, bad stuff happens to good people. There's no reason, there's no explanation of it. This guy is just suffering. He wants back into the community. He wants back with his family. He's done with living this half-life. He just wants back. Wants back with the people of God, back into the worshipping community. And he asks if Jesus, if you're willing. You see, he's nowhere else to go. He completely submits his fate into the hands of Jesus. You can do this if you want to, he says. It's a remarkable place to be, isn't it? To be resigned. Well, Jesus, it's up to you. I still wonder, though, has this leprosy humbled him? Has it been a, a life lesson in humility? Maybe he could remember a time when he snubbed and uh, turned his face away from the leper beside the road and labelled them as being cursed. But he's going to be a different man now, isn't he? He's going to be different now that he's come into the presence of Jesus because he's experiencing what it is to receive compassion and to receive compassion from Jesus. He's restored to what had been lost. Or perhaps he's going to experience for the first time something he's never known. To be part of the worshipping community. Do you see what compassion does? It, it triggers something. It, it triggers a, a transformation in the life of somebody. And Jesus modelled it again and again and again and again. You know as a church we want that to be our legacy. As the people of God, we want to be recognized as compassionate people. Ready to respond with the same attitude that Jesus had towards everyone else that he met. You know, we often make reference to it, but it says there to be a, a growing worshipping community of Jesus followers. Passion about being and speaking good news to the world. Oftentimes we find it more easy to be speaking good news but we also need to be good news. You know, we can't just talk a good sermon to somebody sometimes, well, all the time rather. <laughs> we need to be a good sermon as well as speak one. Compassion needs to be the guiding principle. And we must be willing to allow ourselves to be led by it. And we see that in the next event which happened in Capernaum. You know, the story of the, the man on the mat and the four friends, it's, it's almost like you could consider it a classic story, can't you? You know, if you've grown up through church, it's a story you'd be more than familiar with. You probably drew pictures of it, you probably acted it out. You maybe even took an old shoebox <laughs> and made a model of it at some point in your life. It's such an engaging story. And Jesus has just arrived back in Capernaum. We learned a few weeks ago that this was his early base of early operations, if you like. Probably because of the hospitality that had been extended to him by his friends and by his disciples who lived there. This may well have been the the home of Peter, 
where Jesus had healed his mother-in-law previously. But, as I said earlier, his fame is he's going through the roof, literally. <laughs> his fame as a rabbi is rocketing, isn't it? Everybody knows him now. Everybody's heard about him. We've not just seen and heard what he did in Capernaum a few weeks ago or a few months ago. We've seen and heard what he did there and what he did out there and did there. And he's back. It seems everybody wants to get in this house. Everybody wants a piece of the action. Everybody wants to know what Jesus is all about. Who is this guy? Let's see some more. Let's hear some more. Well, almost everybody. On the other side of the town, on the other side of the village, there's a guy lying flat out on his back. We don't know the cause of his condition. But he's been living with paralysis. And he's been unable to, to walk, to move, it seems, for some time. He might not be a leper, but he's certainly excluded by the very nature of his condition. But today is going to be different. Jesus is around, and therefore so is compassion. And also, faith is rising. The hope of possibilities. People are beginning to question, but what what if? And, and, And what about? And four friends have considered somebody that they know. I wonder, I wonder if just, maybe. And so they've taken the opportunity to go and collect this guy from wherever it is he's lying, whether he's in his bed or lying out or abandoned in the street, (laughs) we don't know. But these guys have got compassion on him, they're going to see a difference in him today. It's speculative. And so take this with a pinch of salt. But is it a possibility this guy must have known at least about Jesus? But even in this incident, there's no suggestion that his friends were operating an initiative on his part. He seems quite passive throughout this story. We don't hear anything from him. He doesn't uh, bring anything to the story. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't comment. He, he seems like, is he in a coma? We don't know. I don't think he is. It's almost like he's taking the Fifth Amendment throughout this whole event. If somebody was suddenly picked me up in a mat and was taking me through the village, I'd be, one, I'd be saying, what's happening here? What are you doing? Where am I going? He seems to be, he's silent, isn't he? I wonder, maybe he's doubted. Maybe he's doubted that he could ever be healed. But maybe there was also something else in the mix as well. Especially when you consider Jesus' opening words to him. When they first meet. Perhaps there's an element of guilt. Of condemnation. I deserve this. With regard to the leper that we met earlier. There is no question of his leprosy being the result of any consequence or lapse in his character. There's no suggestion that it was an act of divine judgment against him. The man himself didn't come to Jesus to confess or to seek absolution. He just came looking for healing. Jesus healed him. That was the end of his story. He went away. But this guy seems to be different. As I said, he's taken the Fifth Amendment through the story. He's lame. He's not, he's not mute. He doesn't give anything away. What, what's going on inside, I wonder? And you know, to answer that question, to a degree we can all legitimately put ourselves on that map. As you're being carried through this little village towards this little house with a flat roof, what's going through your mind? Are you living under the burden of something? 
or something you know that you did wrong. And this paralysis is somehow connected with it. I don't know how, I don't know why, but it's a constant reminder to you that you did something wrong. Almost feels like karma. What goes around comes around. You deserve this. And perhaps you're even hesitant at the idea of being brought before this holy man who's going to see right through you. And he's going to bring the whole thing back to the surface. You want to be healed, but you don't want the shame of the, what have you done in the past being brought back to the surface. I'm serving my penance just as I am. Just leave me alone. Does that sound like a reasonable human story? Could this be the story of the guy on the map? What was his backstory? What was his job before? I don't mean he's sarcastic, but was he a dodgy builder? <laughs> Did he cut corners on the job? And one day the building collapsed on top of him? I don't know. But people will instantly recognize and they'll even say, it's his own fault. He got what he deserved. And how times have we thought that and speculated that about somebody else? But sometimes we do it to ourselves as well. You know, maybe he was just a victim of a circumstance. But there does seem to be something different. Because Jesus said to him as he's laid before him, Son, your sins are forgiven. There seems to be some kind of correlation between this man's condition and the guilt and the condemnation he's carrying. Jesus doesn't call them out. Maybe he knows internally what they are. He knows what they are internally. And there may be, dare say, there's people in this room or up on the roof who know what they are as well. He doesn't need to call them out. But what he does need to do is he needs to vindicate this man before everybody else. He needs to let him know. But he also needs to let everybody else know that, see this man here, he's forgiven. Get up and walk. See, because I wonder, even though we may be Christians, we've been Christians for a long time, some of us are still going about crippled in some sense. You've heard it time and time again. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus finds it very easy to cast our sins into the deepest ocean. We don't though. It's almost like we've almost got a a line still attached to them. And there's a tendency to try and draw it back in or go fishing for it. Or we never really let it go. It's like chewing gum. (laughs) We feel like it still sticks. If the sun sets you free, You are free indeed. You see, in Jesus there's no hopeless condemnation. Jesus himself said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Well, Jesus was a man of his word. He did just that. And on these two occasions, he demonstrated that without doubt. He rescued one man from the the curse of exclusion and brought him back in. On this occasion, he goes even further. He reaches down into the depths of this man and loves his soul and his conscience from the guilt and the burden of shame. In pulling him out of the slimy pit, he literally pulls him to his feet to vindicate him. 
And also his own claim that he does have authority to forgive sins. You know, it's, it's difficult sometimes to tangibly see what the forgiveness of sins is. Often we resign it to a matter of the conscience or some internal nice warm feeling. But perhaps it's almost we can draw an illustration from this incident. Just as Jesus demonstrated on this day, for our part sometimes it calls for an act of will that it needs to actually to be seen, to be believed. You know, some of you I'm sure probably have heard of Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Dutch Christian woman who survived the German concentration camps. You know, her family's crime was that she'd uh, harboured Jews from the, the Nazi authorities. And hence the reason why her and her sister had been sent to... Um, try to remember the name of the, the concentration camp. That's it. Could you say that again? Ribbonsbrook. Let me read to you her story. I was in a church in Munich. This is after the war. She survived, but her sister didn't. I was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to, to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favourite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from Holland's mind, I like to think that's where forgiveness, where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in the home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp, where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message for our line. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him, and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, I, he went on, I've become a Christian. 
I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience since the end of the war I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You can supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then his healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and a former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. It's a powerful story, but it's not just a story, it's it's reality. And we know that things, and sometimes we close ourselves off to compassion because we think, I just can't do that. Jesus doesn't expect us to do it and then through ourselves. He knows what we're like. He knows our failing. He knows that our compassion that's intrinsic to ourselves can only go so far. He wants to infuse us with his so that we'll do even more greater things. Greater things yet. Maybe it is to initiate an act of forgiveness with somebody. We've said it to ourselves. (laughs) I've forgiven them. Do they know that? That act of compassion, and it is an act of compassion, to go and tell them that. To say, you know what? I forgive you. They've got to know it as much as you do. Compassion, grace and forgiveness. These are all hallmarks of a life submitted to Jesus. You know, what might Jesus do through us if we gave ourselves over and more often to acts of outrageous compassion, outrageous grace, outrageous forgiveness? Have you set your boundaries 
I dare say we all do at some point say, well, I'll forget that, but I'm not going to forget that. Jesus, as he's demonstrated already, he just crosses right over them. And he wants us to do the same again and again and again. We need to keep crossing the boundaries. You know, our Western civilization and the etiquettes that we've set in place aren't the boundary. We just don't stop there. There's a possibility to go even further. Just because of what society says, well, that's acceptable, but that's not. We have a higher standard. And it's Jesus who sets the boundary for us. And all is on the boundary is that he does he wasn't recognize them. <laughs> he cuts cutting through them. He says, Keep forgiving. Keep showing love. Keep showing grace. Put yourselves out for others. Doesn't matter if nobody else is interested, but you keep doing it. You know, as a church, as a community, we've done a lot of good things in the short time we've been here. Do you remember the, the floods in Port Elphiston? couple of years ago that was a good thing the storehouse ministry the cat befrienders that we've got among us the Wednesday craft group this Christmas dinner in the town hall we could give ourselves a pat in the back and say yeah we're doing well aren't we but you know there's much much more there's still more to come both individually and corporately You know, we are here for a reason. And it's to show the love and the grace, the forgiveness and the compassion of Jesus. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. There will be opportunities in individual moments and experiences in life when we can do that. But remember, we are here as a community, a gathering of God's people to make a difference. And if we have a legacy in a hundred years' time, And if we're still here, maybe I won't be. (laughs) But we will be remembered for something at least. That we showed the compassion and the grace of Christ. Shall we stand?